I want to invite you to turn in your in your Bibles, if you have a Bible in front of you, into the Gospel of Mark. It's in the New Testament, the second Gospel that's there, recorded the stories of the life of Jesus, the biographies of the life of Jesus and his ministry over three years before his death and resurrection. And we are um, going to be returning to a series which, which I, I, I left when lockdown began, which one I want to pick up again, which is a, a walk through this particular gospel. I'm conscious that some of you have uh, not been listening prior to this, and therefore um, everything that I've said beforehand um, you've missed, but that's totally fine. Each of these messages, as we understand and dissect and get into the teachings of Jesus, has a standalone feel in the sense that we can take it in isolation and receive an enormous amount out from it. But just for context, up to now in the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel, Mark has primarily been recording the preaching and the miracles of Jesus Christ. But now we're reaching a point where he is beginning his journey, his final journey to the capital city of Jerusalem, where he knows that he will ultimately be crucified and that he will be put to death according to the will of God and he will do so voluntarily. And he's walking with that sense of consciousness. People around him don't know this. They don't understand this. Nobody knows this. But Christ knows that he knows it's the purpose for which he's come. And so we enter the story at a new, a new fresh moment where he's trying to explain this to his disciples, the 12 apostles, trying to communicate to them his destiny that he is called to die on behalf of humankind. And this is where we pick up the story. It's in Mark 10 and verse 32. As I said earlier, the words for the scriptures are beneath the video in the description on YouTube or under the the where the the video is embedded on the website. So feel free to scroll down. I want to encourage you to get your attention on the words themselves. And I want to read to you from verse 32 to verse 45. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. All roads ascended to Jerusalem because it was on an elevation. So they're going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, which is his way of describing himself, the term he uses for himself as a title, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, And the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, this is the third prediction that Jesus has given of his coming death and resurrection. Of course, as I mentioned to you just now, it's not well understood. What he's talking about by the, the apostles, it's certainly not on their radar as an expectation for what Jesus would have to face. And so in that context, we read the rest of the story. It says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been 
prepared. And when the ten heard it, this is the other apostles, not James and John. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in reading this story, I suspect that you, like me, find the request of the apostles a little bit shocking and surprising. But I want you to understand right at the outset that you have an advantage in this sense that when Jesus is speaking about his coming death and resurrection, all of you, even if you are not a Christian, you know to some degree, even if it's a very small amount of knowledge, you know what he's speaking about. All of us have seen the images, at least, of the Christ, of Jesus Christ crucified on a cross. We know of his death. We know that this is part of the Christian story and what will happen to him in the days to come. And the disciples, of course, you have to grasp this. The disciples do not understand this. They hear the words, but for some reason they seem to be rejecting what he's saying, whether consciously or unconsciously. They cannot receive what he's describing to them of his coming death and resurrection. It just does not compute or fit into their grid of understanding of what was supposed to happen to him. To him, to them, Jesus is their, their Messiah. He's their savior. And his destiny is therefore a destiny of ruling and reigning over his people, the Jews, but then ultimately over the entire world. And so the path of death and of that degradation and humiliation which Jesus is describing here of his being mocked and rejected and spat upon, these things make no sense to them. And in fact, because they understand the narrative to be one of Jesus is sent to rule and they're his closest friends, they obviously place themselves within that story and see themselves as being near to him when he takes his place, when he takes his rightful place in Jerusalem on the throne and he takes over from Herod and he rules his people into um, glory and uh, insurrection, rebellion against the Romans and so on. And I say all this because it's vital to understand and it perhaps to mitigate to some degree the context for why James and John would make this brazen gauche shocking request this totally obvious self-promotion to be at his right hand and his left and i think it makes a great deal more sense when you understand that their entire narrative is as of one of jesus being a ruler and of them being caught up with him into that position of being prepared to rule with him and i would even put it to you that if you were among the 12 apostles, if you had been chosen as they were to be among this close retinue of followers trained for leadership, that you and I would have had the same thoughts, nurtured them, if only secretly, in our hearts. And so immediately we need to be careful not to judge them or stand in a position where we think how utterly ridiculous their request is, when in fact all of us nurture secret ambitions in our hearts. And all of us have the capacity to imagine ourselves in places of greatness and to desire it for ourselves. All of us do to a man. And therefore, what we're thinking about today is the subject of human ambition, of the, the ambition of the heart, what the Bible describes as the pride of man. 
that desire to be in a place of glory. And I think that in our day and age, this is extraordinarily important and relevant to us. And the reason why I would say so is for a couple of very vital reasons. One of them is that we live in a generation that has the opportunity to choose many paths and has the opportunity to arise and to ascend to positions of power and authority to a degree that wasn't true of any generation that's come before us. And that changes us at a deep level. It changes your psychology of how you approach life. You're not brought up in a peasant home where you, you have no options but where to go. You're in a position where, to some degree, you can elevate your life through the decisions and the work that you put in. And you can find yourself in a position of greatness that wasn't available to generations that went before us. And of course, that affects us on a deep level, the opportunities we have. But along with the opportunities has been a change culturally. And that change is that once upon a time in Christian history, I would say, in the Western Europe, it was considered a vice to nurture and to exhibit ambition. Ambition was considered to be a sinful trait, something that which needed to be um, fought and even put to death in the heart. But of course, we've been through something of a change in Western culture, certainly over the last century or so with the rise of the cult of personality and the rise of individualism and of individual self-expression. We've gone through a transition in which ambition is now considered something laudable and praiseworthy, in which actually there's something wrong with you if you do not harbor and nurture ambitions in your heart and desire them to be fulfilled if you do not want to strive for greatness and in order for your life to somehow be put on a pedestal in some way. It's regarded now as a virtue and not as a vice to nurture these ambitions. And this has been very obviously brought home to me. Just recently, we've been watching uh, one of the very high-budget uh, high talent shows that's on Netflix uh, where there's an array of different people come on the stage before a panel of judges to display their ability in the hopes of being uh, the next great talent to be displayed for, before the world. And to a man, every one of them, when interviewed, always says something to the effect that they want to show people, whether it's their family or others who are watching, that if you really believe in yourself and you put in the work, you can do anything you want to do with your life. And of course, the philosophy is exposed somewhat when some of them fall flat and get rejected. But nevertheless, it's nurtured in the heart and it's preached to the camera and it's accepted by the audience, all of us watching in our homes. We believe this. This is Western moral philosophy that you are destined for greatness and that all you need to do is find your pathway in life in order to express that. Of course, perhaps best articulated by that song uh, that R. Kelly sang back in 1996 before some of you were born. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I think about it every night and day, spread my wings and fly away. Now, apart from the fact that this is utter tosh, it is also a kind of snake oil that we've been sold. The belief and the philosophy, this is Western moral philosophy boiled down to a song that your greatest purpose in life is to express your glory and to find a platform on which all the world can see how wonderful and glorious you are. We have bought into that. That is the narrative of our time. That is part, part of the reason why we see uh, so much desire for self-expression and the prominence of individualism in our day and age. And so ambition 
is now something praiseworthy. What I want us to do is to ask the question, well, what does the Bible have to say about ambition? And what does Christ have to say about it here in this passage? And we're going to start at the wide-angle lens and understand what the Scriptures say about this great subject. What does the Bible say about ambition? And the reality is that most of the teaching in the Scriptures takes the form of being indirect rather than direct. And I mean, what I mean by that is that most of the teaching about ambition is given to us in the form of stories through Scripture, rather than direct teaching about the nature of ambition. And the stories show how God deals with ambition in human hearts. On the one hand, we have the very toxic and poisonous examples of ambitious people. And I think particularly the most obvious obvious example of this is Absalom, one of David's sons, who wanted to assume the throne. And he wanted, he, 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 he in fact, uh, began an insurrection against his own father to take his father's throne. And Absalom is the epitome of human pride and ambition that wants to assert itself. And so he meets his comeuppance. He's, he, he, he meets his, 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 uh, his destruction, ultimately. And then we have other stories like that of his own father, David, who is, in fact, the epitome of humility, plucked from obscurity, a man who was found to be faithful with just some literal sheep on a hillside. And then it says of him that God, uh, that he, that God saw in him a man after his own heart who would do all his will. And when David is chosen by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel, the words in the scripture there say that God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And what does God see when he sees David? He sees a man who is humble, who is faithful in the small things. And so he says, if you've been able to take care of a few sheep, I'm going to put you in rule over the entire nation of Israel. So we see these great contrasting examples of how God brings down the proud, but how he elevates the humble. We also see the people in the middle who are who begin with ambition and God deals with them. I think about Joseph. You remember Joseph boasting to his brothers about how they're all going to bow down to him. And how God subjects him to great humiliation by putting him in a position of slavery and ultimately in prison. And how God's sovereign hand is at work through that to humble his heart in order to be prepared to be the leader which he knew he was called to be. God has to kill his ambition in order to make him useful. The same is true of Moses a number of centuries later who knows and nurtures his greatness in life. He's brought up in the palace of the Pharaoh, a Hebrew out of place, and knows that he has a divine call to liberate his people. But God has to crush him before he can use him. He sends him out into the wilderness for 40 years. And it's only when he's an old man that ultimately God says, okay, now you're ready. You've been a shepherd in humiliation and degradation out in the wilderness. And then God says, now you're ready. So we see all these stories and narratives of the way God deals with pride on the one hand and how he, he loves the humble and loves to raise the humble on the other hand. And we see it come through the narratives and the stories of Scripture and the characters. In fact, there are very few stories in the Bible that are not touched by this theme of human ambition. But that is not to say that it's not a complex issue. And there are a few things I think we need to say about ambition that help us sort of triangulate on what it is we're talking about and why this is a difficult issue to discern in our own hearts. And the first thing I would say about it is that ambition is mixed, that it's a mixture in your own heart of good and bad desires. The reason why I say that is because here when Jesus notices and calls out this issue in his own apostles, do you see how he doesn't condemn them? In fact, he offers them a path. He says, it, he says whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever 
would be first must be slave of all. And so in a sense, he doesn't out and out say that your desires are entirely wrong. And it shows us that immediately we're dealing with something complex, that the issue of ambition in the human heart is a mixed issue, that it is, that it is a mixture of dis- different desires. And the reason why I say that is because I think that on the one hand, there is such a thing as unholy ambition. This is what springs from our pride. It's what springs from our desire for glory. It's what springs from our desire to, to have ourselves in the spotlight. This kind of ambition is in all of us, but it is, it is a subtle thing and it's an unholy thing. And the reason why it's complicated is because it's mixed with this other thing that I would describe as a kind of holy ambition. And by that, I mean the fact that all of us as humans have been invested with a great dignity that isn't true of the animals. It says in Psalm 8 that the, the psalmist reflects and, and he wonders about this reality. He says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man or what is humankind that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And so the psalm goes on. What it shows us is that If you have a sense inside you that you were born for a form of greatness and for a form of glory, that actually isn't entirely wrong. The Bible shows us that the reason that God created humans was in order for them to exercise dominion on his planet, to rule over with a good rule and a benevolent and just rule his whole creation. And so we find that there's this mixture in us of this unholy desire, this prideful desire, that's con- that, that contaminates the holy desire, which is that we, we know we have purpose. We know we are born to do something. We know that our lives are not worthless. We know that we are put on this earth for a reason. And these things are mixed together in a way that's very difficult to separate. And this goes a great deal of the way to explain why you find it hard to understand your own heart in the things that you do. I'll give you some examples. Like, for example, if you overwork, why do you overwork? Why do you beat yourself up and strain and stress and find yourself doing overtime or trying, trying hard in your job? And the answer is, is mixed. There's the unholy element. Now, is it because ultimately you want to ascend above your colleagues and to prove yourself to be the best and to prove yourself to be of special worth in, in your work environment or, or among your fellow students and to get the best grades? Or is it because you feel that God has placed you in a position of opportunity in which you can do his will and live faithfully, and that he calls you to sweat and labor for the glory of Jesus Christ? And I think the answer is, well, it's both. Both of those desires are at work simultaneously in your heart. There is unholy ambition and there's holy ambition. And it's very hard to separate the two. Well, think about another example is when you, um, you feel overlooked by a superior, someone who hasn't given you credit for the things that you've done in your work. What's going on in your heart when you feel sensitive to that? On the one hand, is it because you want the praise of man and you crave it and you need it and you want it gratifies something in you? Or is it just because you know that ultimately in order to fulfill the calling that God has put on your life, there needs to be an element of recognition of the things that you are capable of doing so that an opportunities will open up for you in the future. And I think the answer is no doubt it's both. Or when you find yourself criticizing other people, let's say you have a colleague who isn't pulling their weight or who's giving in shoddy work 
and you find yourself criticizing them to their face or complaining to a boss about them. What's going on in your heart? On the one hand, we're conscious of the unholy desire to, to, to assert ourselves over others and make others look worse so that we look better, ultimately. And all of us know what that feels like and the desire and the temptation to go that way. On the other hand, we're also conscious that that sometimes the truth needs to be told, that in order for work to be done well, everyone in the team needs to be pulling their weight and we need to confront those who are not doing a good job. And so we find that in every situation of life, the subject of ambition is a difficult one to navigate and to discern within our own hearts for the simple reason that our hearts are a mix. There is Both of these things are, are at work within us. And I think this is greatly explained by the Christian doctrine of sin. Sin is not just the idea that you do bad things. It's much more than that. It's that we've fallen into a bad state. That sin is a sickness or a disease that has influenced all of God's creation. The theologians describe this as total depravity. It does not mean that we are as depraved or as wicked as we could possibly be. That obviously isn't the the case. The phrase total depravity rather means that sin touches everything in our lives. All of our motives are tainted. All of our actions are tainted. Even your best acts are tainted. The Christian doctrine of sin, I think, helps us to understand an issue like ambition and many other ones like it because it helps us to understand why our hearts are such complex things and why this is ambition is a mixed thing. Another thing you can say about ambition is it's a dangerous thing. So not only is it mixed, but it's also the cause of much evil in the world. Now, I don't want to say here that authority and rule and power in themselves are inherently evil things. I do not believe that. The Bible teaches us that God himself has all and possesses all authority and power. And he does so in justice and goodness. And the Bible teaches us, moreover, that we were created to rule with him under Adam, first of all, but we neglected and corrupted that form of rule. But that is to be restored under Christ, that to be a believer in Jesus Christ is to know that ultimately he will rule and reign as we've been singing, but that his people are called to rule and reign with him, to be restored to their original calling and to have a kind of power, a kind of authority, a kind of rule through which they are able to exercise God's created uh, purpose that he's given to us. So it's not that these things are inherently evil. What is it then? It's rather that sin, in its pervasive effects, has a corrupting influence on, on human hearts. And that the more power, therefore, that we accumulate, the more sin, the sins that lurk within our hearts are amplified. When you have no power, no influence, your sin can be great, but it has no outlet. You can't affect or hurt other people. And the more that you rise up to positions of of authority over others, whether it's in the workplace or in civil context or even just in a family or among friends, the more that the sins of the heart can display themselves and that ambition that now has an outlet, that now has a, a position of authority, gives opportunity for great evil. And which is why... We often look at people in positions of power and think how evil they are, but they're no different from us. They just have more opportunity to express the evil that lurks in their heart. And of course, I don't feel like I need to work very hard to show you that this is true. Jesus points to this in the story when he says that you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's putting his finger on this very human problem. 
This phrase, Lord it over, occurs three times in the New Testament. All of them speak of a negative abuse of authority. One of them is to speak of a demonized man who beats up seven brothers so that they flee naked and brutally wounded out of the house. And it says he lorded it over them. He was supernaturally strong. And it's, it's an image of what this is. This is the abuse of authority. Jesus says this is the pattern that we see in the world around us. And of course, the Jews were familiar with it. They lived within the Roman Empire. And they saw this abuse, this lording of authority. And I don't need to work hard to prove to you that this is the case. The history of the world is a litany of this, of, of human ambition that, that corrupts and goes wrong. And even just this last week, our front pages and our news feeds have been, have been completely dominated by the issue of the abuse of authority and how ambition that's nurtured in the heart becomes something abusive when it's given power, when it's allowed to assert itself over others. And therefore, the reason why I say that this is a dangerous thing, ambition is a dangerous thing, is because the worst possible thing you could do is to think that's true of others, but it's not true of me. The worst possible thing you could do is to think that the ambitions that you nurture are harmless, are neutral, when in fact, what the scriptures tell us is just how great our capacity for evil is and how therefore we ought to be very suspicious of our ambitions, very suspicious of our our ideas of what we would like to become in life. Ambition is mixed, it's dangerous. And here's the third thing I think we need to say about ambition, that it's also universal. What I mean by that is that it is in all of us, even those of us who are in low positions in life, We all nurture these desires and the longing for glory lives inside all of us. Now, pay careful attention to what goes on in this story. When we see this exhibited in James and John, singled out from the apostles here because of their giving voice to their ambitions, we're actually not that surprised. And the reason is for a couple of things. One is because of their personalities. These men are given a nickname by Jesus earlier in the gospel they're called Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And I think it'd be, it'd be right to understand that these men are loudmouth, they're aggressive, they like to debate and to argue, to assert themselves, they argue with one another. They're dominant personalities. And not only that, but they're also given great privilege by Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, in numerous occasions, we find James and John and also Peter pulled aside by Jesus and put in a position of privilege, even among the already privileged 12 apostles. So they're the only ones who go with him to the healing of Jairus' daughter. They're the only ones who go up with him on the mountain when he's transformed and they see Jesus' glory shining out. They're later on the only ones who go with him to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see them again and again being nurtured for a special position of leadership within the church by Christ calling them out, singling them out. And so it's no surprise when we find them before Jesus at this point saying, well, we get to sit on your right hand and your left. You know, they've already been, they, they've already had this sense of entitlement bred within their hearts because of the privilege that they've been given. And also because of these personalities, these large personalities that these men are gifted with. However, did you notice that after this conversation takes place between Jesus and these two men, it says in verse 41 that when the 10 heard it, the other apostles 
they began to be indignant at James and John. Which means that even if they were not so shameless as to give voice to their own desires, the desire for prominence and glory lived within all of their hearts. Otherwise, they wouldn't have cared. The fact that there's resentment in them towards James and John, the fact that there's envy or potential of envy that they might be selected, the fact that there's comparison among these men tells you that all of them, every single one of them, nurtured some kind of unholy ambition within their hearts. And I say that because the worst thing you can do is to discount yourself from this story and think, well, I wouldn't be like this. All of us have within us this pride, this longing for glory. For some people, it takes expression just through a desire to be prominent on social media, for others in the workplace, for others in your place of academic study, wherever it is, even just comparing your children with other people's children. There are so many outlets and possible ways that we can assert our desire to be greater than others. And it is a universal desire. It's in every human heart. These are the things that the Bible teaches about ambition. Now, in view of this, given that it's this mix of holy and unholy, that it is a dangerous thing and that it's in all of us, what do we do about it? What what does Christ teach us here in this story? What is the antidote? And I want to offer you a few suggestions. The first I would say to you is this. I would encourage you to stop trying to discern your heart and your desires and your motivations and to resolve instead simply to obey Jesus. And let me describe, explain to you what I mean by this. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking and defending his ministry and his motivations. And he says to the Corinthians who for some reason had developed something of a bad attitude toward him or comparing him with other apostles. He says to them, It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Listen to that. He says, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Paul tells us, in effect, that he's given up trying to discern his own motives in ministry and what drives him. He says, I don't judge myself. It doesn't mean that I'm without excuse or that, I, that, I, that I'm without blame, I should say. He says, rather, I leave that to God. God alone is the one who's able to assess and make an accurate assessment of my motivations for the things that I do. And he worked very hard. And of course, the mixture that I've been describing must have been true of him as it is of you and me. It says at the end of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here again, we find a man at prayer who realizes that he is not qualified to discern accurately the desires and motivations of his own heart. And so he offers his heart before God and says, God, will you instead search me? Look for those unholy desires. Dig them out. Help me, in other words, to repent of them. Help me to overcome them. But the psalmist is not trying to discern his own heart or his own ambitions or his own motivations. Just like Paul, he says, I do not judge myself. God alone judges. The reason why I stress this is because I think a great waste of time can be given 
to the effort to understand whether your desires to do things in life are evil or righteous, whether they're tainted or whether they're holy desire to do uh, things for God and to live for Him. And a great many people have been held back in a, sense, a state of in, introverted kind of um, uh, looking at their own life and heart and trying to discern their motives. And ultimately, it's an impossible task. And it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. You are not able to change your heart in any case. You don't have that capacity to change your desires. So what do we do instead? And I think the answer comes to us in this story. And this is what Jesus gives us. It's a very plain, simple, and yet near impossible task. He says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus does not give us a way of changing our hearts. What he gives us instead is a a pathway to walk. He says, this is what you should do. He gives you a choice. He gives you an action to do. And what he calls you to is not to sit around gazing at your own navel, trying to figure out whether your desires are holy or unholy. He instead says, no, this is what you're called to do. Be a servant, be a slave. And it applies, of course, to every context in which we have opportunity to serve others. Sometimes that's just within your own home. Then also it's within your workplace. You're very conscious if you work in an office in London of the many jostlings. That It's a self-selecting crowd, isn't it? People who come to a city like this or come to study in a city like this are self-selecting. They're people who have potentially more drive and ambition than the average person. And so it's not long before you meet with the, the politics and the one-upmanship and the backbiting that can happen within these contexts. What do you do when you find yourself in this scenario? Forget your own heart for a moment. Concentrate on what Jesus calls you to do. He says, just be the servant, be the slave, put yourself in a position of humility in which you live to serve others. And I think this is profoundly wise and helpful. It sounds patronizing coming from me, giving my stamp of approval to the teaching of Jesus. But let me just stress for you why I think this is such a powerful teaching. On the one hand, it addresses our unholy desires. If you do nurture unholy desire in your heart, ambition and pride, the action of putting yourself in a position of service and of being the slave is in itself the act of repentance. It's how we repent. We say, yes, I have these desires, but I want to put myself in a lower place. Or if you find that in your heart there are these good and righteous longings to do something with your life for the glory of God, putting yourself in the position of the servant or of the slave as Christ calls us to is an act of faith. It's a way of saying to God, God, I'm not going to try and elevate my own life. I'm going to trust you to put me wherever you want me. Just like those stories that I referenced, the story of Moses, the story of Joseph. We see also in the life of Daniel. These men did not try to put themselves in a position of power. God put them there when they chose to serve. Stop trying to discern your own heart and simply obey. Here's the second thing I'll say. Seek to imitate Christ. Seek to imitate him, walk in his way. And the reason why I state this is because I know that within us there's a great objection which begins to arise, which is this. Won't I be walked over if I obey Christ, if I put myself in the position of the servant, whether it's at work or somewhere else? Won't I be abused even? Won't I be overlooked by others? And it's very important for us to remember that when Jesus offered this teaching to his disciples, the context that they lived in was much worse than ours. They lived in a far more unjust society. 
one in which the abuse of power was rife and prevalent, in which it touched your life every single day, and in which there was less transparency and accountability. There would not be any social media outrage should you be abused or crushed or put down by others. And so if this teaching applied to them, how much more does it apply to us living today? That we have no excuse, that we cannot say, look, I'm going to be overlooked or I'm going to be walked upon. No, no, Christ calls you to this. This is an act of walking in his example. And of course, this is exactly what the passage shows us. Before this conversation takes place about James and John and their desire, their ambition, Jesus has just told them about what will happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he says, and I'll be delivered over. I'll be condemned to death. I'll be mocked and spat upon and flogged and killed. The reason why this is so incredibly important is because you would be very wrong to imagine that Jesus is somehow a victim in the story of his death and resurrection. A victim is somebody who's put in a position they didn't choose. But Christ very consciously, knowingly, deliberately walks that pathway to Jerusalem in order to fully humble himself in order to serve mankind. And that is a vastly different state of heart and position than that of the victim. Christ puts himself in a place where he willingly goes to the cross, where he subjugates himself to the brutal desires of men who want to crush him and pulverize his body and put him to death. Christ willingly takes that place. His willingness to take that place is our example. And he points to it right after he's taught James and John and the other disciples about what, how they're called to be servants and slaves. The very last verse of our passage says, even for even the son of man came not to be served, but to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wants us as believers to walk in his steps. What are the steps of Christ? The steps of Christ are one of descent into greater humility and service. This is the pathway of the kingdom. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not that Christ doesn't use his followers, his disciples, and put them in places of power. And it's not that being in a place of power is inherently wrong at all, but rather that he always wants you to be considering your position as a position of service so that the more power you have, the more opportunity you have to be the servant to be the slave of all. It's the very inverse of the way the world thinks about leadership. This is why his question returns to James and John. When they say, Jesus, guarantee that we're going to get sit on your right and your left. Jesus says, will you be able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? What he's talking about there, the cup was a symbol of drinking the wrath of God. And Jesus would drink it to the dregs when he would go to the cross on behalf of our sin. And the baptism is a symbol of of death, of passing through the water in death. And Jesus is saying to his apostles, the only way, the only pathway to greatness within my kingdom is to put yourself in a position where you're willing to suffer in order to serve others. The Son of Man, he said, came not to serve to be served, but in order to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is our pattern. This is our model. 
There are many competing models of what heroes look like in the world. The Christians should have one model fixed in their mind. It's the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to bring you to a final point here. As we believe the gospel, these desires of heart will be set right. The gospel message that we believe has the power to change you from the inside out. You can't change your heart, but the gospel can. And this is what is unique and powerful about the Christian faith. Think about this for a second. Every other religion puts fuel onto the flame of this problem of human pride and ambition because all of them offer you an ascending path to greater holiness and righteousness and the opportunity of bettering yourself. So the higher you ascend in the order of what it means to be holy within any given religion, the more likelihood there is of you nurturing this pride, this ambition, this this sense of self-admiration and self-glory. In other words, it does the very opposite to what your heart needs. But the Christian faith starts in a very different place. It doesn't offer you a pathway to better yourself. It begins with the most dire diagnosis of the human condition. It begins by telling you that you are a slave of sin. It begins by telling you that you are an enemy to God if you don't know Christ. It begins by telling you that you are dead in your sins. It begins with the the most dire diagnosis of your condition. And from that place, you're brought to a confrontation with your absolute need for for a savior. There is no opportunity for self-improvement and for climbing a ladder within the Christian faith. Because you cannot save yourself and you cannot improve your life. God himself is the only one who can change you. And so we cast ourselves right from the beginning of what it means to be a Christian. You cast yourself upon his mercy. And your ultimate hope when you stand before him one day is not that you will have accumulated for yourself a record that will somehow impress him, but rather that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will save you on that final day. That his mercy will extend to you. And this profoundly shapes our sense of identity as Christians. We cannot think of ourselves through the lens of entitlement or the lens of self-improvement. Because why? We, we were rescued by Christ. He says it here that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's the same term that's used either in the slave market Or for prisoners of war, it means a great payment is laid down to redeem a life. And Jesus is saying, you were in a hopeless state. And I ransomed you. I paid for you. I redeemed you at the cost of my own blood. And a Christian is not someone who therefore can enter life. Feeling that they somehow have something to offer the world with a sense of their greatness. And they somehow are worthy of attaining to some higher platform. A Christian is someone rather who has seen the wickedness of their own heart and has seen the utter hopelessness without God and who falls on their face in gratitude and humility that Christ loved you anyway, that he gave his blood for you to ransom you and to redeem you. And it means also this, that your life is no longer yours. It never really was yours. You were always a slave to something. 
But to be transferred to the kingdom of Christ is to become a slave of Christ and a slave of righteousness. This is the language the New Testament uses. It's the most common term that Paul uses to describe himself. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ. Because he felt he lived with that profound consciousness that his life was not his own. That he's not here to fulfill his own desires, his own purposes, his own ambitions. He's here to do the bidding of the Savior who purchased him to be his own. And friend, this can impact you. This understanding changes the way you think about your day-to-day life. It changes the way you engage with work, with your career path, with your studies, with your family. It changes every dimension of your life because no longer is it about you elevating yourself. It's rather about you fulfilling the will of the Savior who, who possesses you. You're a slave of Christ. And of course, this is not bad news. Because to be a slave within God's household is to have more dignity and to receive more glory, to receive more glory than a prince within Satan's kingdom. The Bible doesn't just describe us as slaves, it also calls us sons. It describes how we have the dignity of sonship. We're, we're, we're called co-heirs with Christ. We're elevated to that position. But the only people who are able to fulfill that calling of sons are those who also see themselves as the slaves of Christ. So when he calls us here and says, listen, leadership looks like this in the world, lording it over people. I'm calling you to be servants and slaves. He's not calling you to to live out an act. He's not calling you to fake it, to pretend to be something you're not. He's rather calling you to walk in the pathway that is the Christian life. You're here to serve the master. This may not sound like good news to you if you're not a Christian. But I want to remind you of just how relentless, ruthless and battering the system of the world is. You are caught in an endless cycle of trying to improve your life and to prove that you're better than other people. How do you get out of that? How can you be freed from that? How can you step out of that rat race? How can you find yourself free and easy and able to approach your work for the sheer delight of it, not in order to make something of yourself? And the answer is, you've got to be saved by Jesus. You've got to see yourself as possessed by him and living for his glory so that he will have worship and he will be praised. Not so that you are here to build your own kingdom and to prove yourself to be something special. And that is profoundly liberating. That is freedom. To live for the master who bought you. To know that your life has been ransomed. To know that you have worth because he purchased you. And I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to believe on him, to take that step and say, Jesus, I want to be one of your disciples. I want to belong to you. I'm okay to embrace this life, the life that you are instructing me in. I want to encourage you to make that step. And even for those of us who are Christians, friends, how easily we fall back into the mold and the pattern of the world in which we live. Friend, have you forgotten this? You're not here. For your own glory. You're here for his. Do you need to repent right now? You may even feel it's appropriate to get on your knees right now. As we pray. And to ask the Lord Jesus to remind you of his greatness. So that we can be rightly and appropriately humbled before him. And to know for whose glory we live and who we serve. Let's pray together. Father we thank you that in Christ We have a saviour 
who has given himself and modeled to us a humility like no other. To our shame, Lord, we so often nurture selfish desires and ambitions and the longing for greatness and glory in a world that esteems people who are put on platforms. And it eats away at us. And it creates paranoia and it creates insecurity. It creates envy and it creates resentment. And it creates stress and it creates overwork. It creates all these poisonous things because we're constantly trying to better ourselves at the expense of others. And Father, we want to come to you in repentance and say, God, we want to just exit that ridiculous, prideful, wicked, self-serving path of life. And we want to know the liberty of being your sons and your slaves, of doing the master's bidding, of voluntarily and willingly taking the lower place because Christ did that for us. So help us to walk in repentance now, to be your servants, to be your slaves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.